welcome back uh, to Moving Iron Podcast. Um, on this segment, we have Tanner Emke of CoBank, Aaron Fennell, and you know, Tanner, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. All right, man. Uh, it's been a little bit since I had you on last time, and uh, last time we talked, we talked about NAFTA quite a bit and, and where that was going, and, and now we've got some uh, steel tariffs that have popped up here in the last, last week or so, so... How do you see the tariffs working out, and how do you see it working with uh, with the economy? Well, the, uh, we can uh, use our leverage um, to, to say, you know what, you have to buy our soybeans. Now, I think the Chinese have some leverage. They've got some wiggle room here. Uh, they don't have to buy every single bushel of soybeans from the United States because in the past uh, year or the past marketing year here, uh, we've seen the Chinese shift a lot of their purchasing down to South America. One, because they had the bushels. Two, because the, China, uh, the Brazilians had higher protein in their soybeans. And so the Chinese are getting more for their money. And so uh, two motivating factors there for the Chinese uh, to buy more from South America. Now, we have seen an uptick in export sales uh, uh, here recently to the, Chi- uh, to the Chinese uh, from the U.S., but those those uh, export sales purchases could be switched down to South America. So it's not exactly like we've got some magical grip over the Chinese where we can do whatever they whatever we want. They do have room uh, to uh, to leverage here uh, against the U.S. and they're going to use agriculture. The other thing is, why are they picking soybeans? Well, we've got a few politicians. Uh, that they want to send a message to. Number one is Mike Pence. He's a vice president, vice president, obviously from Indiana, soybean state. Uh, you've got Trump, obviously carried, uh, was carried by uh, rural America in the election, and so they're intent on sending a, a message where it hurts. They they watch American politics just as much as we do, if not more, and so they are intent on sending a message uh, where they have the most leverage. So. Yeah, the, the, the trade talk, uh, you know, I can't, it's hard to understate the risk here. Um, if we want to continue going down this uh, path of saying, you know what, <clears throat> let's even out this trade deficit by uh, uh, raising tariffs uh, on uh, our major imports, well, no, no decision is ever made in a vacuum. Someone's going to end up paying for something down the road as an unintended consequence. My concern is, um, that the White House sees agriculture as a dispensable vote. Uh, the rural states tend to vote uh, very consistently uh, uh, red. Now, there's a very strong Republican lean, lean to agriculture. My fear is that the White House would want to make a decision at the expense of rural agricultural states to try to pick up swing votes uh, in some of these steel states or rust belt states. That's my concern. I, now, there's other politicos out there that follow this stuff more closely than I do that may have more of an opinion on that. But that, when I'm looking at these trade spats, I'm, I wonder how much does um, the White House really have rural America in mind? Uh, I wonder about that, specifically agriculture. So, Anyway, all this trade talk has uh, got a lot of people nervous. I, I think it's for good reason. We've already seen what happens with sorghum. Um, the Chinese can make the same move with soybeans or other markets, not just soybeans. It could be uh, almond exports, something like that. Who knows? 
but uh, there's uh, definitely uh, a lot of concern there that needs to be uh, taken seriously. So how does, uh, does that answer you? Think? Oh yeah, that, that you nailed it. That's that was that was awesome. Um, so how is the uh, what they're talking about with the biofuel stuff? You know, here in the last couple of days they've talked about that where they have um, they're wanting to you know change that up significantly from what it was, and there's some pretty big um, reactions that could come from that. So how's that going to play into it? And, and what are you hearing about about the renewable fuel? Um, credits well there's clearly uh, again a lot of concern uh, here in the last well, a couple last more than last week but uh, you know Trump sat with uh, the ethanol lobby and uh, some of the uh, from the energy sector and uh, a couple in a couple of meetings talked about what's you know, saying come up or wanting to come up with some grand bargain uh, ethanol doesn't want that. They don't want any grand bargain. What they want to see is the president committed to biofuels, uh, like he said on the campaign trail uh, before he got elected. And <clears throat> there's a couple of ideas here that, um, you know, there could be some sort of negotiation on E15 that, um, that, e- that the EPA may uh, increase uh, or allow, rather, uh, E15 to be used year-round thereby uh, creating more demand for ethanol and fulfilling uh, the renewable fuels mandate. And as a result, rent prices would drop. Uh, of course, rent being uh, renewable identification numbers, that every gallon of ethanol or biofuel has, has, a, has a number. And so uh, the price, they're traded actively in the market. And um, let's say you're, you're a refiner who does not have the capability to blend well, you can make that up by just buying the rents. You don't have to blend. You just buy these rents from somebody else, and therefore uh, you fulfill the mandate. Um, price the price of rents can go up and down. Right now, they're you know uh, I haven't checked them here in the last week, but uh, the idea is that uh, there may be uh, and punish uh, a very loyal constituency back to back with not only picking a trade war that would hurt our exports potentially, and then at the same time reducing corn demand. That would not go well with uh, Trump's base, especially and particularly in agriculture. So I, I, I would think that he's, keep, he's keeping score here about some of his moves, about what he's saying um, publicly, about what, he's, uh, what he may commit to. So I think this RFS decision is being weighed in this as well, with the uh, tariff discussion, uh, I would imagine that some of the staff is thinking about this, uh, saying, hey, uh, President Trump, uh, you've got a very loyal base here uh, among farmers that we can't push them around too much uh, because they, they pulled for us. They're, they're a very low, loyal constituency. So I, was, I, I would think that the RFS discussion is being made um, or at least thing is happening in this context of how much can we push around agriculture. I, that would just be my wild guess. And again, there's other politicos out there that follow this more closely. You may have more intel out there that can uh, provide you more detail, but I, I don't think these two issues would be made uh, independent of each other. I, I think they're going to be made together. 
that's a lot of good information there. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of that all, all greatly affects, um, farmers and ranchers every day. So can you talk a little bit about, um, like this year, the USDA has forecasted for net farm income levels to be to be significantly low again. Um, what kind of a rippling effect is that going to have on rural economies? Well, it's not going to be good. Um, we, I think, here in the past year, I'll just do a quick recap. Where we're at right now has been uh, has been noticeably better based on uh, what we've seen at CoBank and what we hear uh, from our partners out there in the farm credit system and with our customers and the cooperative or cooperative customers benefit us from uh, some of the phenomenal yields that we had last year. And uh, that saved a lot of farmers, at least at the very minimum, got farmers another year in the game uh, to where they could uh, stay in the game financially. Uh, at the end of uh, 2017, uh, this is just as a side note, we saw a noticeable increase in the amount of business that uh, CoBank does with uh, co-ops. And we think that had to do with two things. One, farmers tax-wise were showing a, uh, a loss in 2017, and they had record yields, which were going to show uh, positive income for 2018. So their tax planners were saying, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to move some bushels from 2018 sales to 2017. So you can uh, shift some of this in, uh, over into a year where you're showing a deficit. Uh, so farm financial purchases are operating loans and uh, financing land purchases and machinery purchases and like that. And the thing is that the population now is just that if one continues to uh in farming, yields to make up for these low prices, which in the long run kind of perpetuates this issue of lower prices. But uh, yields do matter, uh, and we saw it this year. Uh, yields are what kept a lot of farmers in the game. Uh, farm, you know, farm machinery sales are up. Uh, you guys, I'm sure, are watching that. Uh, this was after a number of years of delaying sales. Uh, excuse me, being purchased. Uh, question there in the having uh, We know that is you know, a stress that we've got coming at us in the year forthcoming. Uh, for farmers and ranchers. At the same time, you've also got um, a world that continues to be awash in commodities, in agricultural commodities. And so we're probably not going to see any major changes in price. We are seeing some uh, improvements in price because of some weather scares, particularly uh, in wheat because of the drought in the central and southern plains, uh, especially in the central and southern plains, but there's other areas in the U.S. that are struggling with drought. But specifically with wheat prices, we've seen some recovery there because of uh, what is expected to be some major losses. And then we've, we've seen some uh, recovery in uh, in the row crops, uh, corn and soybeans, because of the uh, uh, the problems that we're having in Argentina. These are momentary recoveries. Uh, eventually, you know, we always return back to normal weather. So this is not a long-term fix to the commodity pr- uh, price stress we're seeing out there and not Therefore, not a long-term uh, boost on farm income. It's momentary. So I think that's being reflected in USDA's outlook that without record yields again in 2018, uh, the, the increase we've seen in price is not going to be sufficient to have a material change in net farm income. 
and I think they they dropped uh, their estimate uh, by about five or four billion uh, dollars, down about six and a half percent year over year, and that'd be the lowest since about 2006 in nominal terms. So, yeah, I think the uh, the USDA is looking at this very soberly, uh, saying, you know, we've had we had some uh, boosts here um, in the last year that have helped farmers, particularly with yield. Uh, key to the total net farm income uh, story across the U.S. has been livestock. The livestock industry was the major lift that we saw in 2017. I think they're saying that we're probably going to see a moderation of that lift. And uh, we're going to need to see record yields uh, at the individual farm level in order to see uh, this story actually turn out to be a positive. Uh, but I think they're fairly sober about that. Um, Tanner, you kind of touched on it a little bit. I think the probably what's gotten farmers pretty helpful, too, besides a little bit of an uplift in the markets, is probably this new tax bill. Um, there was a lot of benefits in there to maybe alleviate some of the tax burden on the, the farmers and ranchers. Um a big part of it was the Section 199A. Have you talked to any private companies that are looking into maybe um, setting up a cooperative side, or what are you hearing kind of maybe from the political side if if they're going to make that change to the tax bill or kind of where that's going? Well, that's been obviously a big issue for our customers. Uh, we we uh, we do business with both uh, private uh companies and uh, co-ops. And so we've, we've had questions from private uh, companies on how they can become a co-op, and it's not an easy thing to make happen. Uh, there are companies out there that are making, that are at, there that have said so publicly that they intend on uh, trying to become a co-op. But I know on, politi- on, on Capitol Hill, politically-wise, this is not going to go over very well. Uh, Capitol Hill has done a knee jerk on this and they want to undo it. Uh, we'll see what, uh, what happens. I mean, I think they've got a timeline here. Uh, they need to get it done here in March, I think, is a bill. Uh, you probably, you probably have better luck, uh, getting the inside baseball story, uh, talking to somebody who's, who's a lobbyist. But I just in talks with our customers, um, this is something that, uh, that politically is causing problems, and that co-ops are going to benefit very handsomely from this. Because now, as if you're a private company, um, and you, uh, you're, you know, the farmer benefits tax-wise by selling only the co-ops. Well, now if you're a private grain company, for instance, you need to bid up. You need, you need to uh, shorten or uh, narrow your basis or increase your local bid to compete against a co-op or just buy straight from the co-op. And some privates uh, don't want to do that uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, logistically, uh, that's cost, or uh, they just have to increase their bid, which raises their cost also. So they want to avoid that. And if they can become a co-op, uh, they can uh, they benefit uh, from this uh, tax advantage that farmers get by doing business with well, uh, it's not so easy. Uh, there's a whole lot of uh, legal issues going on there with uh, be, uh, switching over from being a private company uh, into a co-op. It's not just you don't sign a document and done. It's a pretty involved process, uh, probably more so than some uh, may think. So uh, I, I know that 
this is uh, very heat. This is causing a lot of heated discussions out there, and I've heard them all. And so I, I'm reluctant to say too much <laughs> because <laughs> CoBank is doing business with both sides, and um, so we don't want uh, our customers. We don't want any of our customers being at a disadvantage. Uh, but neither do we want, uh, you know, unfair competition out there just in the spirit of, uh, in the spirit of market, uh, free markets, you know, um, it, it's good to have things, uh, it's good to have, it's good to have a free market. Uh, that being said though, uh, you know, some of our customers benefit. And so, you know, it, it, it just puts your, your private customers in a little bit of a quandary. So where this goes, um, I don't know. Capitol Hill is not the most functional place these days. And so whether a change would come or not, um, I'm not hopeful on any change of any significance, uh, bipartisan-wise, coming in uh, Capitol Hill. But there may be some who say, you know what, this is, uh, this is something that uh, could actually happen. Again, I don't have the inside baseball on it. You might want to talk to somebody from who's on the inside of Washington, D.C. would have a better view of that than I would. Tanner, being that you guys do so much with co-ops and given the current ag economy and on-farm, you know, nothing is rosy in ag, so to speak, what kind of shape are co-ops as a whole? How are they sitting across the country? Well, co-ops, uh, they make their margin a lot, uh, most of their margin on, uh, on basis and on trading basis. Uh, they also make margin on, uh, grain handling and, you know, storage and making money on, uh, carry in the grain markets. Uh, now I do want to point out it's not just grain companies we do business with. So there's a lot of farmer co-ops out there that have nothing to do with grain. Uh, so I don't want to focus the conversation ex- exclusively just on grain. Um, but that is uh, the bulk of our business, uh, the bulk of our customers, uh, co-op customers, anyway. And, um, you know, they're, uh, when you look at uh, things like accounts receivable, there's a little bit of stress coming out, uh, or you can see a little bit of stress uh, in accounts receivables. Uh, AR is increasing in uh, some places. Um, this past year, uh, with these record yields, uh, Farmers have got a little bit more cash, and so uh, their accounts receivables uh, are not as bad as they once were. Uh, one thing that I that we have talked about uh, with our co-ops is what they're doing with uh, some of the alternative financing. So what I mean by that is uh, seller financing. When the co-op finances a sale of seed or chemical or fertilizer, um, Instead of the farmer getting financing through a primary lender like a Farm Credit Bank or Farm Credit Association or a community bank, uh, or just paying cash uh, for his inputs, the amount of co-op financing has been declining. So for our co-op customers, that's not good necessarily because that's a source of revenue that they're going to be missing out on. But in the broader picture of agriculture, that's a positive sign. So we don't want to talk about co-ops exclusively in a in a vacuum here without talking about farmers and ranchers. Uh, farmers and ranchers, uh, like we talked about earlier, appear to be in a stronger financial position 
And so, therefore, they've got some cash to buy their inputs, and that means um, less of some of these other uh, revenue-generating things like uh, financing that co-ops have benefited from. So that uh, that arm of fine, uh, that arm of revenue for co-ops has been down. Um, Basis-wise, though, I think uh, co-ops are in a better position, and they're, they've especially been making more money on carry in the grain markets, and uh, that's been a positive story. So, by and large, I think the uh, the story for uh, ag co-ops, especially grain co-ops, has uh, has been mostly a positive one. I wouldn't say that there's uh, anything out there that's of extreme concern um, other than some of these issues that are perpetual year in and year out. It's hard to find good labor. Um, you've always got pressures uh, to consolidate uh, as, you know, executive directors or managers of a co-op retire. Well, it's hard to find somebody to replace that co-op, to replace that manager. And so maybe the thing to do is just merge with the neighboring co-op down the road. Uh, those pressures are always going to be there. Um, the cost of labor is never going to go down. It always goes up. Uh, the, the labor market is continually getting tighter. Uh, is just, that's the truth across the general economy, but especially so in rural America. Uh, I know a lot of counties out there um, in, in the rural part of the country are dealing with some excruciatingly tight labor markets. We're talking like 25 3% uh uh, unemployment. I mean, there there are basically no people left to be uh, to hire to be hired. Your talent pool has been sapped up. So, from that perspective, that that's always been a headache for co-ops. Uh, I don't see that that's going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, so, regardless of the financial position of co-ops, uh, some of these stressors are never going to go away, uh, and, and I fear that they're only going to get worse. And so, that creates some other stresses down the road in terms of transition strategies, in terms of just having the people to staff an operation, uh, to man the facilities, to have a guy out there to drive your sp- to drive the sprayer uh, for your customers. Uh, those are some issues that are ongoing, and unfortunately, um, I don't have any positive views there. Uh, it's something that we're all, everyone in agriculture is going to be dealing with uh, here in the years forthcoming. So one last question, Tanner, and we'll get it wrapped up here. What, Looking at the first quarter of the year, it's, it's almost wrapped up here. We're heading into uh, the springtime. When, what do you, what's your outlook right now for the rest of uh, the remaining first half of uh, 2018? For the general ag economy? Yeah, just overall, just with the current conditions that you see and in, in, in the crop situations that we're in, especially being – being from Kansas where wheat is a big deal, I mean, how do you see that shaping up and how do you see that playing out? Well, agriculture is obviously a very diverse industry and some of our customers are doing very well. Um, But throughout the midsection of the farm belt in the Midwest and the Great Plains, uh, like I said, we're entering 2018 on firmer footing, it appears, because of some of the uh, record yields that we had last year. Now, that being said, we've got some concerns, especially when you look at the central and southern plains. You've got some excruciating drought that's going on. Uh, It's the driest winter on record. Uh, In Kansas, when you look at crop conditions there and where we are in soil moisture, that's not a good story. And so the benefit of 
big yields last year is probably going to be tempered this year by some very uh, mediocre yields if we don't start seeing some uh, recovery in uh, soil moisture. So that's going to be in addition to um, the some financial stress out there for a lot of people. Prices are have recovered, but what's a higher grain price mean if you don't have a crop to harvest? So for those farmers out there, I'm concerned. Uh, in the Midwest, uh, farmers I think had uh, a lot an opportunity to pay down a lot of their debt uh, because of uh, record yields. Uh, prices have recovered. Uh, we'll see what happens with uh, uh, yields this year. Obviously, we've got a long stretch in front of us. But uh, let's say we have, uh, you know, the, the strength that we've seen here recently uh, in the markets uh, continues. Uh, or let's say, for instance, optimistically, the farmers lock in some of these prices. For a lot of farmers, they're going to be in the black. Uh, if you look at some of the uh, break-even cost of production data, for instance, in Iowa, uh, Iowa State University comes out with their balance sheets every year about uh, what break-even cost of production they're forecasting. And for a 185 yield on corn, the break-even is about is almost $4. Well, right now, December futures are, are above that, trading just about $4. So, in our, so farmers right now have an opportunity uh, to lock in a profit. Now, I think we all know that that's not going to happen for everybody. Some people are going to miss it. And so... Um, I would say my general view of where we're heading out uh, for the remainder of 2018 is that for some farmers, this is going to be a great year. For some, it's not. And I, I don't know if that would make anyone this year any particularly different uh, than other years. But I'm hopeful that um, that the slight recovery we've seen in grain prices is going to keep farmers in the game for a little while longer, at least. Uh, my other concern, though, is trade, which we talked about. Um, if we see markets correct, like we've seen with the sorghum market correct after um, the trade uh, the trade spat we had earlier this year, that's going to hit a lot of farmers pretty hard. Rising interest rates, um, that's going to be increasing uh, on farmers at a time when they've got elevated levels of debt. So right now I'm I'm a little optimistic. But there's some things out there, specifically with trade and interest rates, that really do have me concerned. And I think uh, we need to keep a look at these, keep a look on these things, uh, these issues uh, going forward. And I strongly encourage uh, farmers to have a good conversation with their bankers or their lenders, whether they're uh, a farm credit association or a community bank, uh, and anybody else they're in business with. A co-op. These are all people they need to have on their team and talking about the year ahead so they can position for it. All right, Tanner. Well, I think that pretty much gives us a pretty good overview here. So do you have any final words you'd like to throw out there before we shut it down? Uh, let's see. Leasing, being, <laughs> go to your ag director. <laughs> oh, no, I won't make a point. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Tanner. Aaron, do you have anything before we should close it down? I don't. I don't. That was really good information, Tanner. Thank you. Gina? You guys did. Glad to do it. Thanks, Tanner. All right. Well, thanks, sure Tanner. Thing, guys. All right. Take care, buddy. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Yeah, bye.
All right, well, I think that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Tanner M. Key of Cobank, Sean Skaggs of Livingston Equipment, I'm sorry, Sean Skaggs of Livingston Machinery, and Chip Nellinger, Chip Nellinger of Blue Reef Agri-Marketing. Um, you can find us, all of us, on internet. I'm uh, at Moving Iron LLC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Aaron, where are you at? Uh, Aaron Fentel on Facebook and Aaron at Aaron Fentel on Twitter. And the brains of the group, Regina, where are you at? <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Regina Nardis. You should be able to find me. Right on. Okay. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at Moving Iron Podcast.com. Make sure you visit Moving Iron LLC. There's all kinds of information there about the upcoming Moving Iron Summit. You can find the past and current uh, episodes of the Moving Iron Podcast and the Moving Iron blog as well. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review uh, at your favorite podcasting platform. And if you shop Amazon, please use the Amazon click-through at uh, movingironllc.com. won't cost you anything, and you'll still have the same experience that you're accustomed to while supporting the podcast. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Aaron Fentel. Regina Nardis.